You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. And my guest today is Jeet here. Uh, probably most of you know who he is, but I'll ask Jeet to introduce himself anyway. Sure. Um, I'm a staff writer at the New Republic, uh, where I mostly write about politics, but occasionally, uh, especially over the last three years, but also cover culture. Uh, and um, I'm also, for the purposes of this uh, um uh, podcast, uh, very relevantly. I, I write a lot about the history of comics. Um, I've edited, um, and, uh, written the introductions for, uh, multi-volume series, uh, dealing with, uh, reprinting old comic strips like Gasoline Alley and Little Orphan Annie. Um, and I've, I've written a book called In Love with Art, which is a biography of Francois Mouly, who's the, um, art editor of The New Yorker and very important figure in the history of comics. So, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on again. Um, so this conversation is going to be about Stan Lee. Uh, most people probably heard that he passed away earlier this week at the age of 95. Um, you know, it was, uh, well, someone who's 95 years old, not super surprising that when they pass away, but also he, he gave an interview earlier this year to the Times in which he was, you know, cogent. And, well, there were some stories about maybe uh, someone was trying to defraud him or something, or maybe the people around him weren't taking proper care of him. Um, you know, he was still doing stuff and he was like, all, you know, uh, like a battery of, of energy and constantly like coming up with new characters and new ideas and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so I think his death is a kind of a major cultural moment and he was a major cultural figure. Um, and you wrote, and you wrote an obituary of him, uh, which we will link to for the new Republic, uh, titled Stanley, the midwife of the Marvel universe. Uh, and he is a, person who has a lot of kind of mythology built up around him. Um, you know, I read Marvel comics growing up in the nineties mostly. And, uh, every, I believe back then and still now every Marvel comic would say Stanley presents at the beginning. Like, I don't know if they still do that, but they did that for many decades. Yeah. So, you know, he was like the master of ceremonies of all of, all of the comics I was reading back then. And, and then you kind of would learn, if you got into learning about the Marvel characters, you would learn the story of Stan Lee being kind of a, uh, you know, this, um, you know, relentless creator of characters. The, the list of characters that he's credited with creating, uh, is very long. So if people who don't follow comics, it's basically most of the major characters from the Marvel universe that you've heard of, uh, the Avengers, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, X-Men, Incredible Hulk. He did not, uh, do Captain America, but he did Thor and Iron Man, um, and, uh, Daredevil, Doctor Strange, you know, these movies have been coming up out like, you know, three or four a year for the past decade. Um, and he was credited with coming up with these, with these characters and they've become in the past 10 or 15 years, like the main thing that, um, a lot of pop cult pop culture revolves around, uh, you know, the Avengers was the biggest movie of the year, Black Panther, which another character he, He's credited with creating, um, you know, was a huge like cultural uh, and economic uh, blockbuster <laughs> earlier this year. So he really has had a big effect on the culture. Uh, but then the, there's a question like, does he deserve all the credit that, that he's gotten? Mm-hmm. Or do other people deserve some of the credit? And he deserve uh, a very small amount of the credit. So this is what I hope to talk to you about. Um, so, OK, so I guess that's the first question. How much credit does he deserve? for what we know as Marvel Comics and the characters that he is said to have created. Sure. Um, yeah, I think the, the the myth is um, that he is the sort of the the father of the Marvel Universe, the kind of, you know. And um, in my uh, obituary, I kind of very deliberately said he's the midwife of the Marvel Universe, uh, which is kind of a different thing. Like, I think... Um, in some ways, I think we can compare them to figures like Edison, Walt Disney, or Steve Jobs, that there's a kind of, you know, general cultural myth of this uh, person as a, a fountain of creativity. And then, but the people who are, know a little bit more about the history are aware that actually there's, you know, more complicating factors. There are other people who are involved who sometimes didn't get credit or, uh, and sometimes didn't get the, um, uh, financial uh, reap the financial benefits. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's true to say that if there's any one person who's a figurehead for Marvel, which is like basically the sort of DNA of like Hollywood right now, it's Stan Lee. Um, and I think 
that Stanley was very important. I see. Here's the problem. Um, in sort of debunking the story of Stanley, you run into the problem of saying, well, actually, he didn't do a lot of the stuff he claimed, so he's nothing. But actually, Stanley is very important, but he's very important for different reasons than he's given credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, maybe one way to do this, I want to run through some of the history, uh, and, uh, uh, maybe, uh, viewers, um, uh, to give viewers a sense of, like, uh, what his actual achievement was. You kind of have to know the larger sort of history of comics. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the comic book industry, you know, started in the late, um, uh, mid to late 1930s. It's the sort of, um, uh, growing out of really, uh, pulp magazines. And so it's the bottom of the rung of, of the ladder, of publishing, because uh, pulps themselves, they paid a penny a word, and were often published by, as early comics were, were published by gangsters, were published by people, you know, fly by night, no, I mean, literally, you know, um, uh, there's a very good book by Gerard Jones called Men of Tomorrow, which documents this, that the early, uh, um, early comic book publishers included, um, you know, people with, who were friends with Frank Costello, and other members of the New York Mafia, and, and that, uh, you know, pulp publishing, um, uh, you know, like often involved, uh, people like bootleggers, uh, um, who would be, uh, transporting magazines across, uh, uh, line and then also bringing booze. And it was a sort of a money laundering operation. Uh, so this is, so we're not talking about, like, you know, uh, Alfred A. Knopf or, like, Random House. We're talking about, like, the sleaziest fly-by-night operations. Uh, and the early comic book. Yes, yeah, so uh, kind of like one step above pornography. Well, it was some of, it was pornography. I mean, like a lot of the same people were publishing pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the spicy, uh, magazines and sort of like men's health magazines where you could get like, you know, like uh, pictures of athletic young men. Uh, yeah. I mean, those were the same people who were publishing comic books. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it's, it's, I mean, that's who, who is, who's, uh, uh, doing this. Um, and it's a kind of very much an immigrant industry. So the early in 1930s, uh, New York, you have, uh, you know, like a lot of Jewish immigrants and uh, Italian immigrants. And these are the people, um, who are recruited to the early comic books. Um, uh, you know, you know, this is a story, story that sort of Michael Chabon famously mythologized in, uh, his novel, um, uh, Cavalier and Clay. Right. Uh, so, and uh, coming out of the depression, you know, a lot of people aren't going to college or, uh, uh, going to professional work and they're coming into this immigrant industry. So, and a lot of the early comic books were organized like sweatshops. Uh, so it's very much, and Lee was uh, very much a part of this, but he had a kind of opening in because his, um, uh, he had a relative named, um, uh, Martin Goodman who, uh, uh, started, um, uh, 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 did a lot of pulp publishing and did comics and started a comic book company called, uh, Timely. And Stanley joined Timely at age 17 as a kind of assistant and gopher. And the big thing that, Timely had going for it was that they had this team of Simon and Kirby, uh, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, and they created Captain America, which is a big hit in like, um, it came out, uh, in 1941, uh, months before Pearl Harbor, patriotic superhero, anti-fascist, mm-hmm. you know, bopping Hitler on the face in the first issue. <laughs> and, uh, the, yeah, uh, my own Black Panther is doing a cameo yeah, yeah, appearance yeah. as she often does. Um, uh, and so the, uh, uh, and so that was a big hit. It sold a million copies. Uh, it was very successful. And Stan and Jack uh, Kirby and Joe Simon were like the biggest names in comics at that point. Uh, and Stan was brought, uh, you know, brought in by his uncle to, you know, work in the office and was kind of seen as a bit of an office pass. Uh, but then uh, Kirby and Simon got into a conflict with uh, Martin Goodman about royalties. They were promised royalties. It's very much a Hollywood situation. The comic book was selling a million copies, and Goodman was saying, it's actually not making money, so we can't give you royalties. <laughs> <laughs> and so they left Captain America, and, uh, and uh, Stanley, whose name was um, uh, quickly rose to the ranks. And that's actually the point where Stanley was created, because his actual name was Stanley Lieber, uh, but you know he wanted to be a novelist, but he thought, if I'm writing comic books, that'll discredit the name Stanley Lieber. Mm-hmm. So he created the name Stanley. Ironically, to protect the uh, uh, his uh, original name, but he really became Stanley. It's a case where the mask becomes a man. So, um, was, was there a, um, a a sense that he wanted to uh, anglicize a, a Jewish name in, in taking up this name as well? Well, I think there might have been. No, I actually think his story, which I think is 
fairly credible is that he uh, actually uh, he had sort of literary aspirations and wanted to keep that name. I think there was some anglicizing going on with other people. Certainly uh, Jack Kirby uh, was originally Jacob Kurtzberg. Um, but uh, but I don't think he ever wanted to become famous as Stanley. That wasn't the goal back then. Mm-hmm. And the goal was certainly not to make uh, a name for himself as a, a comic book writer. Um, uh, so there's a divergent path then, right? Because um, Joe, uh, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon break off from uh, Timely Comics, break off from Captain America, and then they continue to make a lot of very successful comic books, uh, things like uh, Boy Commando, uh, and then like after World War II, uh, after um, Kirby had served uh, in the army, uh, uh, Simon and Kirby reformed and created uh, basically the first romance comics, which were like huge sellers, were the best-selling comics of the late 40s and 50s. And they, uh, so Kirby and Simon continued to be a kind of successful team, um, making a lot of different comic books in many genres. In the 40s and 50s, and they were the most uh, generally regarded as the most innovative people in comics. Um, Jules Pfeiffer, uh, who's a cartoonist himself, who's um, part of that era, you know, often said yeah, everybody was paying attention to those guys copying their work. And certainly, one person, Stanley, at this point was the editor in chief. He's 19 years old. He's the editor in chief of Timely, and so he's like editing a line of comics, which is like kind of like amazing when you think about <laughs> it. But I think it's also the case that you know. Um, Timely Comics in the 1940s and 50s is very much a knockoff publisher. So somebody else does something innovative. Um, uh, Kirby, Simon and Kirby do romance comics. And then so Timely does their own romance comics. Uh, Archie comics become popular. So Timely does their version of like a, a teen kid. And, and there's like Little Lulu becomes popular. So Ty, uh, Timely does their version of Little Lulu. So it's not known as an innovative publisher. It's known as like this sort of copycat thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what it does in the fi- uh, 40s and 50s. And in the 50s, it changes its name to Atlas and does sort of horror comics, um, uh, which, and crime comics, uh, as is, were popular in that area. And then, uh, the other big thing that happens is that the comic book industry goes through these big contractions in the 50s. Uh, there's a famous, um, uh, 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 book, Seduction of the Innocent, right. which accuses comic books of creating juvenile delinquency. Uh, there's a Senate hearings. And that really hurts the comics industry and, and creates basically a collapse where there's like a purge of the industry. Many companies go to business. Um, uh, and I mean, comics are kind of treated then as like video games are treated like in the nineties and and two thousands of of like, yeah, corrupting the youth, causing violence and, you know, scourge to be eliminated. Yeah, exactly. And they, and then they, and and much more so than the other ones. It was actually hurt. I mean, like in the forties, Comics were like huge bestsellers, selling millions. They were like about a third of any magazine sold was a comic book. And then suddenly the industry really collapses in a big way in the, by 1954, 55. And there's also a, a contraction of, um, the uh, distribution network, which also hurts. And that actually breaks up the team of Simon and Kirby. Um, they're having a harder time selling their work. Joe Simon, um, uh, who's the more the, um, the promotions guy decides to go into advertising, uh, and, and, uh, goes into other fields and, and Kirby's on his own and he's a freelancer. And then the other thing that happens is that Kirby is doing freelancing and he's uh, working for the main company that's still left, which is DC Comics, which publishes Superman and Batman. And, uh, he does work for them and they're starting to revive other superheroes, they're reviving the Flash, and Kirby is very much part of that. He brings in, um, he uh, works on Green Arrow. He creates these characters called Challengers of the Unknown. Um, but Kirby runs into a problem with DC, which is that he's working on a um, newspaper strip called Sky Masters, which is about the space age. Uh, and there's an editor at DC who was part of that, who put it together, but Kirby gets into a fight with him because he's getting too much of the royalties. Kirby sues him and then um, and loses a lawsuit and then is sort of blackballed by DC. So Kirby can't work for DC, which is the main publisher. A lot of other publishers have gone out of business. And Kirby is kind of left with, like, you know, what am I going to do? And it's in that situation that he returns to working for Stanley. Uh, you know, when there's really nobody else left. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he feels like he can't go to advertising the way his, um, partner Joe Simon did. He can only, you know, he's really committed to comics. Uh, he goes to Stanley. And as it happens, Jack Kirby comes to Stanley at the very moment when Stanley needs somebody. Because in the 50s, the main artist for 
uh, Marvel Comics had with this guy named Jim Manley, who Lee loved and was did a lot of work with and uh, 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 was um, the main art, uh, artist for Atlas. And Lee actually had dreams of like, you know, this guy's going to be my partner and we're going to do other things. And Lee thinks the comic book industry is going to hell in a handbasket and wants to get out and wants to do a comic strip. And his dream is to have Jim Manley uh, do the uh, uh, comic strip with him. And what happens is one day, uh, Manly is in like in New York City. He's drinking with, uh, uh, with some of his friends, um, uh, falls on the train tracks and is killed. Oh, wow. And so Stanley loses a valuable artist, a partner, somebody he was hoping to like, you know, have a future with. And the very week that Jim Manley dies, Jack Kirby comes back and, you know, comes to town and says, I'm looking for work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the... So uh, it's, it's like something out of a comic book. It is something it, out of a comic book. In a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. So those are very dramatic times. <laughs> um, and so, so, um, so Kirby and, uh, Lee are partners together in this kind of shrinking industry and they're trying to make things work. And one of the things that they hit on is these sort of monster comics it's a time where godzilla movies are first coming over and they do like thing thang foom and every month they have this different monster that's attacking the earth and kirby's a very good draw artist in terms of drawing monsters um, so this is like tales of suspense and those other like, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, fantasy. yeah 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 so so these are anthology titles sort of have a monster horror theme and then which is like more uh, a monster theme which kind of replaces horror comics because horror comics are kind of forbidden by the new censorship in comic book industry, but monsters, space aliens are somehow allowed. So that's, they're, they're out. Um, but, but still it's very rocky and like, it's like financially very unsuccessful. And like, you know, Lee at this point, you know, has, has had to like let go of a lot of staffers. Um, and he uh, is telling people like when I walk through the offices, like, you know, Martin Goodman, you know, the, the publisher doesn't look at me. Like he just like turns away and Lee kind of feels like, you know, like things are on the out. Um, and, and, and these guys are working, you know, for this, like, lowly, not, not very reputable, sleazy publisher, and they're the lowest guys on there, right? Like, as an example, the, um, um, uh, the, um, uh, Goodman's company also published all these, like, men's adventure things, like, you know, He-Man, and, uh, these, uh, these are, uh, uh, pulp magazines that always had, like, um, big burly guys punching out, uh, Nazis. <laughs> uh, and the, uh, uh, and uh, one of the writers there was M- Mario Puzo. And, uh, oh, really? was also run for them. And, uh-huh. and Puzo just like looked down on Lee and these guys, like, you know, who do these guys think they are? You know, it was just kind of funny because I like, saw like Puzo was like Shakespeare at that point, right? <laughs> like he's like, but, 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 but. So it's at that point that sort of like, you know, um, something, uh, you know, like Lee and Kirby both realized something has got to change, right? Now, the version that Stan Lee gives is, that he decided, let's, uh, he saw that DC Comics were successful at superheroes and decided, let's do superheroes and let's try it and let's, I'm gonna put everything I have in it. I haven't become a famous, he was like 39 years old, right? Like really middle aged now. I haven't made a success in comics. I haven't made a success in novel writing. I'm just gonna like put everything I have into these things. And, and then, you know, like, and there's various variations of the story. Like he saw Spider and he thought, Let's make a superhero as a spider. So that is all, you know, like if you research this, it's all nonsense and like total lies, right? So here's what um, I think happened based on testimony from Kirby, uh, from Steve Ditko, who's another artist that Lee had recruited, um, and, and from um, uh, many other artists, uh, but, but also based on sort of the work that Kirby had done, right, in the, in the past. Um, so I think what happened was that the, the monster comics had a certain success, but weren't doing enough. Um, and, and DC comics was certainly having more, some success with superheroes. And, but Kirby knew that because he was at DC. He had done Green Arrow. He had done Challenges in the Unknown. And Kirby had done other superhero comics in the sort of, uh, uh, 50s. And he had created Captain America. So, um, the way that Kirby would usually work, uh, was that he would create um, these, what he called presentation copies. Like you would design characters, you know, have names, um, and story outlines and, you know, bring it into publishers. And that's how he worked in the forties and fifties. That's how he worked in the seventies. And I think that's how he worked at Marvel Comics. Uh, at least based on his own testimony. And I have really, there's no reason to doubt this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
there's a there's a couple of things. One is um, that you know Kirby had this long-standing connection with superhero comics. He had a long-standing interest in mythology. He had done uh, several stories in the 40s and 50s featuring Thor, like Thunder God, variations of that. He had a lot. Of, he was a uh, sort of avid reader of pulp science fiction and was like really steeped in that. Um, and I think that he uh, uh, went to Lee and like presented these characters, which have very close similarities to stuff that he had done before. So the the first big one was the Fantastic Four, uh, which is, uh, you know, four characters um, uh, who are not quite classic superheroes. They're like, they, they, they went, uh, uh, um, uh, they're kind of like adventurers, right? They, they come together to, for a mission, which is to beat the Russians to the space. Uh, and, and then something happens to them and they become transformed. And that's very similar to the book that Kirby had done for DC, Challengers of the Unknown, mm-hmm. um, uh, in, um, in, in the late 1950s. Um, and if you look at like the, um, uh, and, and I think, uh, so I think that, uh, um, uh, there's a strong continuity between, and the other element of continuity, which is innovative and fantastic for is, um, compared to most superhero comics, it has more of a sense of a romance fluid. It's a kind of like evolving storyline with soap opera aspects. Um, it's also this Mr. Fantastic, who's kind of like a plastic man character, the invisible girl, who's like, uh, his girlfriend, her brother, the human torch, uh, who's like a torch, and the thing, who's a monster, uh, this rocky thing. Uh, and then, so with the thing, you kind of see that they're taking the elements of, um, it, um, the monster comics that they were doing. And bringing him into the superheroes. And with the relationship between the Invisible Girl and Mr. Fantastic, there's a strong element of soap opera. That the, the sort of, um, Kirby had done a lot of stories of love triangles in the sort of, you know, uh, um, really hundreds of romance comics he did in the 40s and 50s. And this really recurs in the Fantastic Four. And so, so this, uh, this was, I think the new elements, um, that made the Marvel comics interesting, uh, was this sort of, um, uh, a grafting of romance comics to, uh, superheroes, to monster comics. That Kirby at this point had worked in many genres and he was kind of like doing sort of like a meta genre now, mixing them all up. Mm-hmm. So you have space opera, um, uh, uh, soap opera, uh, romance, western, they were all kind of like merging together. Right, and uh, it was also a family drama because family drama, yeah, yeah, three yeah. of the people were eventually Mr. Fantastic and Invisible Girl get married, and then, you know, the, uh, Ben Grimm, the thing, is their friend, but they, so they're like a family, they're stuck together, they, like, avuncular, yeah, they argue with each other and have, you know, yeah, that that was, that was an family, um, and so I, I think that, like, all of that, um, not all of it, but I think a large element of that came from Kirby, and I think a lot of the other stuff, so with it, soon after the Fantastic Four comes out, and it's successful, there's, like, a kind of, like, this burst of creativity, at Marvel. And um, so they have all these characters like, you know, Thor, uh, Hulk, um, uh, Iron Man, um, that are very successful. Uh, and then, and, and then they, they bring back Captain America and create the Avengers out of that. And then with, with Steve Ditko, um, um, Stanley works uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, creates or works on Spider-Man and uh, Doctor Strange, uh, which, as against sort of Kirby's cosmic drama, are more uh, Spider-Man is much more urban and gritty, uh, and Doctor Strange is more psychedelic. Uh, but but again, I mean, I think with Spider-Man, I and mean, one of the interesting things is that uh, Kirby claimed, and I think there's a lot, there's a lot of evidence to back this up. Uh, in the late um, um, that he had a role in that, he in the late 1950s, he um, uh, and Joe Simon as one of their last gasps at, at trying to do something, created a character called the spider for, um, uh, for, um, uh, Archie comics. Um, and then, uh, uh, yeah. And then Kirby had this kind of interest in sort of insect world. He also created Ant-Man. Uh, and so, so Spider-Man seems to be a variation of that. But I think that where Lee's role came into that was that, um, if Kirby had given a presentation copy of Spider-Man, uh, Lee would have been the one to decide, let's give that to Steve Ditko. Um, and, uh, the cover of the first Spider-Man story is actually the cover is drawn by Kirby, but the inside is drawn by Ditko. And that's actually a kind of brilliant choice. And that actually gets us maybe to where Stanley actually does have an achievement because I don't <laughs> think Stanley 
was a great creative genius writer, but I think he was an, a great um, editor. Um, that if he was not the Faulkner of comics, he was perhaps the uh, Max Perkins. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if he wasn't the Nabokov of comics, he was the Harold Ross, right? He's mm-hmm. the he's the guy. So he he I think the fact that he appreciated the talent of Kirby and Ditko and other artists that he would bring in. Um, and especially with Kirby and Ditko, he gave them a free reign that they would not otherwise have, partially because he didn't have the economic clout to control them. But it, the, if you compare DC Comics to Marvel Comics in the uh, early 60s, um, the D, Marvel Comics are much more freewheeling in terms of the art. They're much more like um, uh, uh, the DC Comics really look like um, – uh, very suburban, like everybody is well coiffed, uh, very white, very, you know, clean cities. And like the Marvel comics, you know, they have New York. And it's a very rough looking New York with rough looking people. And uh, and uh, um, there's a kind of like a, a grittiness and an edge to them. Uh, and I, 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 I think I, Marvel, I think the emphasis on like the primacy of the art at Marvel, like stayed with it until when I was reading comics in the nineties and was like the art in the Marvel comics was really cool. And the art in the DC comics was like flat and like who really cared. So they, yeah, it was, let's also talk about this Marvel method. We don't need to do it right now, but let's, let's run it The reason why the art was so, so freewheeling and so uh, primary, which is that like, so it's a small company, you know, struggling and they don't have a lot of staff. So, um, uh, they, in terms of expanding, they want to expand, but, uh, you know, like he, Stan at that point can't hire a lot of staff. So they come up with this method, uh, which is that the artist would, um, uh, basically draw the story. Like, I guess in the early days, maybe Stanley would talk to the Jack Kirby a little bit, like, this is going to be fantastic for Dr. Doom will be the villain. Later on, it was like even less cursory, right? And so, uh, uh, so Jack Kirby would, uh, you know, uh, based on very little information, just draw out a whole comic book and then Stan would add the word. And, and also very crucially, uh, Kirby would put in copious notes along the side of the art and on the back, um, giving the, uh, 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 explaining what's happening. And Ditko would do the same thing. Uh, you know, draw the art and then he had a separate sheet, which was a kind of like a dialogue sheet, you know, and, um, so basically the for in terms of who did what you know like I think Kirby and Ditko did the character design um and character conceptualization uh did the plot uh did the sort of preliminary dialogue and Stanley was basically doing the finishing work he was finishing up the dialogue mm-hmm. and, and it had to be that way because he was writing like you know like you know uh 8 10 12 books a month right yeah the 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 amount that they turned out, especially Kirby drawing it all, is, like, incredible. Like, yeah, like, yeah. seven or eight uh, comic books of, like, 22 pages or so a month is just, like, crazy. <laughs> that's right, that's right, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, I, and so, um, so, 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 uh, but, but I do think that, um, so, so the, in terms of, like, the sort of, the storytelling creativity, like, I do think there's, like, you know, the overwhelming creative burst came from uh, Kirby and Ditko. And then to, there were some other artists who were also involved, um, to, uh, did uh, good and important work like Wally Wood and Gene Cohen. Um, but I think the Lee's um, uh, role as editor, we shouldn't underemphasize that. Uh, even though, I mean, like for someone like me, there's always a tendency of saying, well, you know, like this guy is really, you know, it's a charlatan and a huckster. <laughs> well, in case, in case our viewers and listeners haven't picked up, you are a Jack Kirby partisan. If we're saying yeah, it's I, it's Lee versus Kirby, and you know who who deserves the credit? Uh, no, I think Ditko is also. I mean, I, I, you know, like if we're saying this is the Beatles, is like you know Kirby and Ditko are like you know Lennon and McCartney, right. and then Lee is George Harrison. You know, <laughs> he has like kind of, uh, <laughs> he has a few songs. <laughs> okay, but, but but actually, I think that actually, but I mean that doesn't quite get at the synergy because I think there was a synergy and there was stuff that. Lee brought to the table that was very important and indeed crucial. So one thing is the sort of cross-pollination of characters, right. which is something that I don't think we see in Kirby's work 
before or really later. That um, uh, Lee would constantly, he's trying to build up a line. So, you know, he has the Fantastic Four and then he um, they do Spider-Man and says, like, let's have Spider-Man meet the Fantastic Four. And the early days was almost done in the spirit of cameos where, like, you know, like, there'd be, like, a few panels there. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like, they'd often say, like, you know, thanks to Spider-Man magazine for letting us use Spider-Man. <laughs> as if it weren't the same publisher. Uh, <laughs> but anyways... But it is the case that the, that started something very significant, which started the creation of a an idea of a coherent universe. And I, I do that. It is the case that Lee was the first person to use the phrase Marvel Universe, which he used like in a uh, uh, in an article that was in one of the magazines in like sixty four, sixty five. And I think that's actually a very important innovation. Like uh, it's true that the DC characters sometimes got together, but it wasn't, you don't really get a sense that this is like, um, uh, uh, taking place in a single reality and stuff that happens in one book influences another. And, right. and Lee really creates the seeds for that and the conceptualization of that. And it's a kind of branding exercise as well. He wants to create a brand, which he, he successfully did. The Marvel comics is this thing and our characters all hang out together and have relationships. Uh, uh, and his voice helped it too. The fact that, you know, I mean, one could say about his writing, uh, uh, if you object to it as I do, that is grating, uh, that the dialogue's often corny, that he falls back on a lot of cliches, but it is the case that he has this sort of carnival barker thing. Yeah. He's always come up with nicknames like, you know, Smiling Stanley and Jack King Kirby and, and creating the spirit of a clubhouse. Uh, and also creating a fandom, right? Like he's very cagey about having letters pages and having like things like no prize. Like if you find a mistake, you get a no prize, which is not a prize at all, but, but creating the sense of, yeah, uh, I, I really wanted to get one of those when I was like 11 years old, but I, I don't think I ever, I ever even sent, sent in for one. Exactly. So, so, so it created the sense of like, you know, camaraderie and fanishness, which actually worked. Like, like Marvel became, had a kind of fan culture, um, which I think he, and he created that sort of, you know, Marvel, Mighty Marvel Marching Band Society yes. or whatever the hell. Yeah, and there was, there was also constant references to the Marvel bullpen, which is yeah, like where all, the artists and so forth would work. Just, it's just like an office, you know, like an open plan office, I guess. But it seemed, when I was a kid, it seemed like well, it's a magical a place. It's a total fiction. Like you had <laughs> a few staffers, like, you know, uh, Lee, uh, you know, like Kirby would come in like maybe, initially like once a week but maybe once a month or something like that you know like Ditko and Lee didn't talk together for the last two years that they worked together on Spider-Man uh, I mean and it's interesting where that fiction came from because Lee did have a bullpen in the 40s and 50s when the comics were like first very successful he was able to hire a lot of people hire a staff and he had a bullpen he really loved that and so he always wanted to create the idea that there is this bullpen but there was no bullpen there's no, that's just, I mean, there's no, pr- there's no prize, there's no bullpen either. <laughs> this is all, this is an amazing act of, act of sort of like Potomkin cultural building. Like, let's, let's pretend that, you know, there is a bullpen. Let's pretend <laughs> that, like, these comics have literary significance. Let's pretend, you know, and then, and, and, but he pulled it off. Uh, so, 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 um, let's pretend there's a bullpen. And then, like, yeah, it's amazing, like, you find out, Later, like, you know, like Kirby did, uh, had a very good inker named Joe Sinnott on Fantastic Four. And like, they only met like many years after they worked on the Fantastic Four, like once at a convention, right? Like you think like these guys are a team and there's a bullpen and they're like, you know, joking together. Yeah. And then Stanley certainly created stories to that effect, but that was all a myth. That's wow. all. Not really true. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I guess when I was a kid, I was, in addition to wanting to win a no prize, I wanted to work in the Marvel bullpen. I was like, that, what's, yeah, yeah. is that a dream job or what? And um, obviously, I never made it. <laughs> I, I, had, yeah, I, <laughs> I had pretensions of being an artist, but I could never really draw. Um, but then it was like, okay, well, I guess there wasn't a Marvel bullpen. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. I hate to be the, the bringer of bad news, but there was no bullpen. Uh, but, but, I mean, there was like... Um, but but what he did create was a sort of infectious sense of enthusiasm, and then you had you know sort of um, younger people that wanted to come to Marvel and who wanted to imitate his voice. So you, but, you know, starting in the late mid sixties, you had people like Roy Thomas come in and who were really the kind of second generation. Uh, but, but one thing that kind of happened along the way was that he really alienated Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, and I think there's a couple of factors involved. I think that there was at that initial burst of creativity. I think there were probably promises made to Ditko and Kirby that, you know, like if you, you put your everything into it and we create these characters, you know, like if they become successful, you'll get something. And they 
didn't get anything. They were they were freelancers. And, right. So the company owned all of the intellectual yeah. property that that yeah. these guys created. The company owned the intellectual property, and more importantly, the company needed the fiction of Stan Lee. They needed the idea because under copyright law, they needed the idea that it was like their guy that came up with everything. That it wasn't like you know uh, uh, these freelancers that did it, right? And so Lee himself was wedded legally to the myth of Stanley, right? Like he had to be, he was the face man for denying the rights to artists. So um, now around this time, like 64, 65, uh, Steve Ditko starts reading uh, Ayn Rand. And uh, which was, I think, in general a mistake, but it does actually have some interesting consequences. You get a really hardcore Randian. And from his point of view, like, you know, suddenly like it, what's happening is very compromised because, you know, it's, it's being presented as like Stanley created this stuff, but Ditko knows he's actually creating it. And Stanley is a kind of like looter parasite. Uh, and he's and And so like, you know, Ditko leaves Marvel comics and he actually wrote a letter to Kirby saying you should leave too. Um, Lee didn't, Kirby didn't leave because he had like four kids, uh, one of whom was still like quite young. Uh, and, but Ditko didn't have any kids. So Ditko could go back to, you know, the less secure, uh, 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 life. Uh, I mean, they were both, they'd still be freelancers, but you know, they had like steady work. Um, Ditko was more able to give up steady work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Kirby wasn't, and that's in 1966, but Ditko leaves. Uh, but, but Kirby is like looking for an out. Uh, and then what happens is that the Jack Schiff, the editor of DC Comics, who had blackballed Kirby and forbidden him forever working from DC Comics again, he retires in 68, 69. So suddenly Kirby can return to DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what he starts to do. So, so starting in the late 60s, he's already thinking about it. He's creating characters, but he's not giving them to Marvel. He's keeping them for himself to take to DC. Um, and, and so, yeah, so, uh, by 1970, Jack Kirby is also out. And both men are like, you know, like Jack Kirby, more waveringly, he kind of goes back and forth. He works for DC. He returns to Marvel. He collaborates a little with Stan Lee, but he's still very, very bitter, especially because in every public pronouncement, Stan Lee is like really emphasizing, you know, I'm the creator. I came up with this. And every time Jack Kirby reads that, he gets mad. Uh, and so Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, um, both, uh, you know, become very bitter and, you know, like, uh, about Stanley and, uh, you know, really have nothing good to say. Um, now, and, and, and this goes back and forth in kind of like interviews in sort of fan magazines. Uh, and then also the, the other big issue is that, um, Marvel Comics had kept all the art that Jack Kirby had. Uh, but they never paid for the art itself. They paid for the, re- right, to reproduce the art. So legally they owed it to him, but they w- would only give back the art if he signed a contract saying, I never created anything. Mm-hmm. And so this big dispute in the 1980s about, like, you know, returning Kirby's art. Um, uh, and again, a lot of people felt very disappointed in Stanley because he didn't uh, speak for the, uh, anything about that. Um, so, so, so basically these guys, uh, you heard, heard kind of, you know, it's a bit like the Beatles. They had created something, uh, uh, synergistic and beautiful, but then became kind of like bitter foes. Um, the, perhaps the code of all this is when Jack Kirby dies in 1994, um, uh, Stanley doesn't know what to do. He's like, you know, uh, he puts out feelers through friends to the widow of Jack Kirby, uh, uh, Roz Kirby, who's a very fierce defender of her husband and says, can I come to the funeral? And she says, yes. So Lee comes to the funeral. Uh, and then as soon as it's over, he kind of like slinks out and leaves. And like Ross Kirby's like looking around, where's Stanley? You know, like, so that's the, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, I mean, but the one big difference is that Lee continues to be the face, the corporate face of Marvel Comics. He really stops writing anything after Kirby and Ditko, uh, have left, right? Like by, it is a year or two after he continues to do some stuff. On Spider-Man, but after 1972, he doesn't really write comic books that much full time. He occasionally comes up with ideas, but honestly, like they're like disco dazzler and stripper uh, Lena or whatever. They're not funny. Uh, but but he really moves to Hollywood and tries to promote Marvel Comics in Hollywood, which is a kind of, which is actually very significant. Um, uh, but 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 yeah. So uh, um, uh, Lee is basically, but even though he does not make comics anymore, as you said. Every Marvel comic book says Stan Lee presents. There's a little like Stan's soapbox in every comic book mm-hmm. where 
like you know spouting off about various subs promoting books and he becomes a promotion man he becomes that kind of you know walt disney figure who's the the public face of the colonel sanders you know he's like the the public face of this company uh and so and so uh which is very different than you know kirby and ditko i mean ditko partially out of his randian convictions and maybe for other reasons but hated giving interviews uh i think only gave one interview in his entire life hated being photographed you only have like one or two photographs huh. of him from when he's young. Um, he did actually, Ditko did write the, the sort of publicly, privately published fan magazines where he explains his side of the story and they're very interesting, but they're written in this kind of like Randian idiolect, which you kind of have to like, uh, uh, really struggle to decipher. <laughs> Uh, and then Kirby, you know, gave interviews and whatnot, but he's not, a, again, a sort of self-promoting guy. He's really like an artist artist. And, uh, and so, 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 uh, in that situation, uh, but Lee is very good at talking. He gives, he is constantly on tour in uh, colleges, constantly giving interviews and really becomes a face of Marvel. And then by the 1990s, when Hollywood is starting to do more stuff with Marvel, uh, making these movies, Lee is like in you know, almost all the Marvel movies. There's this little Stanley cameo, as if he's Alfred Hitchcock, as if he's like the guy who's like you know invented all this stuff. Right. Um, the, the last Marvel movie I saw, which I think I can't remember what it was, maybe it was the Ant Man and the Wasp. Whichever one he, he when he came on screen, people in the audience clapped um, yes. because he he became this beloved uh, iconic yes. figure. Yeah, I, yeah. The Hitchcock, Colonel Sanders. I was thinking like maybe um, he's not Walt Disney, but he's Mickey Mouse. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, well, rep- he represents the company. Yes, and he also, I think, what? So let's maybe let's talk about things we should credit Stanley with. Um, oh, <laughs> I thought I gave him a lot of credit. Yeah, well, well, we've busted some myths. Okay, so um, pers- uh, uh, innovative personal branding. So yes, yes, he, yes. he kept a consistent way of talking, uh, appearance with the mustache and the tinted glasses yes. and the slicked back hair, um, and. Yeah, his writing style, you know, he, he loved using alliterations and adjectives. So he created this personal brand, you know, before people were thinking about personal brands and oh, yeah, yeah, consistency yeah, yeah. Th- through it so that you could see a little sketch of his face and you, um, you would automatically be like, yeah, that's Stanley. Um, okay. yeah, and then, you know, going out. So I didn't realize that he had gone out to Hollywood like in the seventies. So, uh, he was way ahead of his time. You know, it wasn't possible to make a believable, uh, comic book movie. You know, I guess, I guess the Superman movie came out in the late seventies, but, and there was, there was a lot of aborted attempts to make Marvel movies that yes. never got off the ground and were like total embarrassments. There was like this Fantastic Four movie that Roger Corman directed, I think that was never actually released. Um, but then finally, like it started to pay off in the late nineties and early two thousands. And now it's like taken over pop culture, uh, yeah. Marvel movies and the Marvel movies are, with, I guess the exception of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies are consistently like better, and I guess Wonder Woman as well. They're, they're better, they're more fun, and they make more money than the DC movies. Um, DC is trying to do the same thing with creating like a DC universe where the characters mm-hmm. appear in each other's movies, but they haven't quite. So like there was Batman versus Superman, and then the first appearance of Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman was in was in that movie, but no one liked that movie, and um, and it didn't exactly work whereas like the avengers movies have been like crowd pleasers and a lot of them have gotten like over 90 percent on rotten tomatoes even though everyone like bashes comic book movies like the critics are like yeah this one's pretty good like go see it it's fun um so i think you can trace some of that back uh back to lee um who came up with the idea to have all the comics set in new york city instead of metropolis or gotham city or wherever yeah, that's a good question because I actually think in the first Fantastic Four, it's not quite specified as New York. But so I would uh, have to think though that like Lee kind of had a role uh, uh, in that. Although I mean, um, maybe the I mean the art was also like so unescapably New York that <laughs> maybe like pretending that it's not a, a fictional city was no longer possible. Um, but yeah, I think I think he might deserve some credit for that. Um, um, and I think that the, a lot of the New York dialogue actually is, is from him. Like he has, like the thing talks in this kind of very, like kind of, you know, Brooklyn way. Yeah. It's like, a, well, the Yancey Street gang, which is the thing's rivals are, um, from Delancey Street on the Lower East Side, which I think is where Kirby, um, yeah. was, was raised. So yeah, there's, and the thing is, is revealed to be Jewish at, um, yeah, yeah. At other, yeah. other points. Well, that's actually the other thing, which I think is also true of, comes out of Kirby and Ditko as well, but I think that all three of them did have, um, from various strands, 
a kind of, you know, commitment to civil rights. So like Marvel Comics, um, fairly early on, uh, I think in Sergeant Fury, you know, uh, um, had uh, a, a black character, a uh, black soldier, and then um, and then Lee and Kirby came up with Black Panther. Uh, so I, I think that, and they, they did various, and certainly the X-Men was thematically very uh, related to issues of civil rights uh, as an allegory, and they had characters like the hate monger. So, so, so there was this kind of, you know, um, uh, a combination of sort of Ditko's Randianism was compatible with a kind of, you know, civil rights, uh, 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 broad civil rights stance. Yeah, and someone someone posted a photo uh, when the, when it was announced that Lee had passed away of one of his sto- soapbox columns that was about like explicitly about racism, and it was like you know if someone like hates a black man, like hates that black man, it's probably because he hates all black men, and you shouldn't associate with with people who have that kind of hatred in their heart. So like I, there were like uh, you know I think important messages for the young you know mostly yeah, like yeah. teenage boys and, and such. Um, okay, so who yeah, do we have any idea who came up with? I did have a more of a kind of uh, political edge than a lot of the uh, um, other comic books of the time. Uh, so I think that that's added more, I mean, with the sort of, um, uh, uh, um, uh, if we make allowances for Ditko's kind of very strange individualistic Randy in turn, I mean, it was broadly kind of, you know, Cold War liberal. Yeah. Um, do we know who came up with, with great power comes great responsibility? Uh, oh, that was Spider-Man yeah, slogan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, th- I think his writing does give deserve some credit in terms of you know they could be like I think he was good at sort of teenage slang and sort of like joke some of the jokiness stuff kind of does work and does actually leaven maybe the sort of grandiosity of Kirby and Ditko's art hmm. the the uh, you know like it it kind of uh, uh, so so you see that like in things like the Thor movies where you know you have like serious stuff happening and then you know like so this sort of like uh, quip. And so, 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 which, like, I think that that comes from him. And I, I think, like, in terms of, I mean, I, I'm not, like, a huge fan of Stanley as a writer. Like, I actually think, if you're talking about, even within the realm of comic books, I mean, if you're talking about writers, like, you know, like Carl Barks, who did the Uncle Scrooge comics, or John Stanley, who did Little Lulu, to me, those are really well-written comics. They're very clever and witty and, and sophisticated. Um, uh, I don't quite see that as much in the Marvel comics, but they're very readable and actually in some ways perhaps also very accessible, which is very important. Um, I think a lot of like Kirby's work, um, especially his later work, more obscure work, and certainly Ditko's own sort of Randian work is not that accessible. You have to kind of make it more of an effort. They are sort of in that sense closer to being art. Uh, but, but I mean, I think that the Lee stuff, Lee created a bridge between the sort of uh, weirdness of Kirby and Ditko and the more, you know, the mass audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, that was essential. So I, I want to give him, yeah, I, I hope I don't come across as being too anti-Lee. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we're, bust, we're busting myths here, I suppose. And, um, and Lee was a, like a figure who, ha- yeah, had, like, <laughs> you know, he was a teller of, uh, fantastic tales and amazing stories and you know tales of suspense and so forth and um yeah i mean mean, go back to the beatles analogy like in some ways i do think because which is often made but i actually think lee is not the either lennon or mccartney i mean i think that's ditko and kirby but i think maybe who's the who's the manager who uh did so much work for them brian epstein is that right yeah. yeah, I think he's like the Brian Epstein figure, which is also like a crucial part of the story, right? Like, I don't think we should, it's not to denigrate like the role of managers and editors and cause they, they kind of, you know, like, uh, 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 facilitate and enable and, and really, uh, um, uh, make popular art possible, right? Like, uh, so, so I think that like Ali does, this, and I think that the synergy was essential. Like, I think you kind of needed um, uh, the three guys together to make Marvel what the, what it was. And the, the, even when, even though I happen to think, I mean, I, you know, at the end of the day, I would say like, you know, I I think Jack Kirby was a kind of a visionary, uh, and I think Ditko was um, uh, uh, a visionary. Uh, I think Lee was a talented guy who had a gift for gab. Uh, uh, but, um, I was, um, lucky to be working with these, uh, supremely talented figures. And, and, and I think that's the story. Okay. Is that, is that too harsh? I no, know. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a, a, a interesting corrective to, to the story that Lee himself told in most 
people accept it. So we'll just a couple more questions. What, so Lee was Jewish, um, Kirby was Jewish. I'm assuming Dicko was not Jewish, just based on his name. No, no, Dicko was, yeah, yeah, Dicko was not Jewish. He was, I mean, it was, I, um, interestingly, I think, uh, in turn, Randy in turn, probably an atheist. Uh, uh, he did a lot of sort of privately published comics and they always attack mysticism. Huh. I think it's interesting also that Ditko, I mean, one of his genuine creations was Doctor Strange. <laughs> this is all about magic and mysticism. Right. <laughs> he was a kind of interesting character. Uh, I mean, uh, Ditko often, his, his Randian ideology is at odds with his artistic instincts. Uh-huh. So I, so that, you know, this story is told in Cavalier, uh, Michael Shaman's Cavalier and Clay, as you, as you said, I mean, I think as I recall the story, it was like, uh, you know, if you were a talented illustrator or writer in New York city in that era, like you would want to work on Madison Avenue for an advertising company. Um, a lot of those didn't want to hire any uh, Jews to work for them. So they ended up more on this like disreputable side of yeah. things. Uh, working yeah. in the pulps and eventually comic books. Um, so I, that's the, that seems, I think that's the story of Cavalier Clay. And I think that is like a realistic story about what happened to some of these people. Um, do you see any influences of, of Judaism or the way American Jews existed in this era in the work that was produced? I mean, I see it in kind of like the outsider is often the main character in a yeah. Marvel comic. Like Spider-Man is this nerd and like no one likes him. And, uh, and a lot, yeah, a lot of, and the X-Men are outsiders and. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but also, I mean, I think more broadly, the sort of theme of double identity. Um, I think the otherness of God is kind of very important. Like it's very different than the sort of Christian sense of, you know, the personal God of Jesus, right? Like, mm-hmm. like yeah. if you think of what God is in the Marvel, you know, it's Galacticus. This world eater, right? Like it's very much a kind of, he is the god of the book of Job, right? He's the god that will destroy you as much as anything. <laughs> you know, look at you, right? Like, and then with and beyond human can and beyond, uh, human sense of justice. Um, uh, uh, the, um, I think that this sense of peoplehood and of group difference becomes very important. That, like, I think the early comics came at a period where assimilation is very important. So it's all about, you know, like how goyish, you know, Superman is, uh, and Clark Kent are, even though they're created by Jewish creators. Right. But I think that the, with the thing and whatnot, you have this idea of like, sort of like difference can be good. And especially with the X-Men, right? The whole idea is that they're, they're different than other, they're a group of people that are persecuted, are different than other people, right. but their difference is not a, is not a negative thing, right? Right. There's, I think the line, at least in the nineties was they're sworn to protect a world that hates and fears them. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 And I think you especially see that interestingly, it hasn't taken off that much, but it's one of Kirby's most interesting creations, which is the inhumans who are like these, you know, which I think, um, the writer, um, uh, one writer suggested was like, it's basically the Lower East Side, right? Like these are, these are like these people that are hiding away from the world and then have to come out and, you know, like have some sort right, of... So sim- they live on the dark side of the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of them, you know, like one of them, they have a patriarch and then one of them is, uh, becomes interested in a human and they have kind of like intermarriage. And this is whole, this whole question of how does like an ethnic, how does a group that's different relate to um, a polity that like is suspicious of them mm-hmm. is like very important in Marvel comics. So I think, um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I think that there's a lot of, uh, uh, Jewish elements. Um, uh, and the stuff that, I mean, I think the whole, uh, with someone like Kirby, um, his, he grew up listening to folk stories from his mother. Uh, and there's a whole kind of like European folklorish thing that you get from Dr. Doom. And that sort of, you know, that, that, that European world of, uh, sort of like peasants and, and lords and, uh, and a very gothic atmosphere. Which <laughs> right. I, I, Dr. Doom, have, Dr. Doom huh? rules a country. It's not called Latvia because that's a real country. Was it actually called Latvia or something? Yeah, something along those lines. Um, yeah, Dr. Doom is the uh, autocratic ruler of a small <laughs> Eastern European country. Um, yeah. so, okay, so here's, so, as I was thinking about, I've thought this before, before Lee's death, but okay, let's, let's take Lee, let's consider Lee, Kirby Dicko, let's, you know, put them together like the Beatles or something. And then, um, consider other like storytellers or areas, uh, people who created, uh, fiction. So who can we compare and compare them to in terms of like how their work is, is going to be received by, uh, coming generations and how often it's going to be like reinterpreted. Uh, a thought for creativity and like branching off in another area. You know, I thought like the, the, the people or 
uh, groups you can compare them to are like uh, uh, Greek and Roman myths, uh, yeah. the biblical characters, mm-hmm. and Shakespeare. And, yes. and then I th- and then Lee Cor- Kirby Dicko. I, I like is that crazy? No, I think I think there's an element of that. I think that's certainly uh, one of the things uh, uh, claims that uh, Lee and even Kirby made for themselves. That they, this is kind of like a sort of like a, a modern mythology, um, and I think that that's part of the idea of the Marvel universe, and then having this sort of pantheon of characters, and then also having it, you know, in a commercial context where they can be reinterpreted and remade. I think Dickens probably belongs in that, like, just in the sense of their Dickens characters have a life outside of the text, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, even in the 19th century, people were writing, like, you know, Oliver Twist, the sequel. You know, Oliver Twist goes to America. <laughs> yeah, they weren't authorized, but... Um, <laughs> They were, uh, they certainly, so, so yeah, I think, I think, I think like it, well, one could compare it to, um, the, um, the, the group, the characters that like, um, have a life outside of their main text. Uh, and often people don't need to read, read the main text. So that would be Don Quixote. That would be Frankenstein. That would be Dracula, Dr. Jekyll. Um, which actually, I mean, interesting enough, these are all things that, you know, uh, um, uh, Kirby read a lot of and, had a big influence on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was I was just thinking about um, you know Spider Man to take one character who's kind of the flagship character of Marvel and thinking about all the iterations and ways he's appeared in different media. Uh, started as a comic book, there was an animated TV show in the seventies, I think, and then a live action TV show in the seventies. There yeah. were at least one and possibly two animated versions around when I was a kid. Then there was a movie, and then they rebooted the movie, and then they rebooted the movie again. Uh, a, a lot of video games. I don't know how many. Yeah. Uh, there was a Broadway musical, and mm-hmm. there was even a roller coaster. That was a Spider-Man roller coaster. <laughs> and this yeah. is all from, you know, ha- you know how many of these people read Amazing Fantasy fifteen, um, yeah. where the first appearance of Spider-Man. But this character is just, you know, has these iconic tendencies that gets reinterpreted over and over and over again. Yeah. No. No. I mean, it's an amazing story of like this kind of. Um, um, uh, so, uh, I always think of it as uh, the, 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 you know, the story of the hidden imam. You know, the kind of the figure that you, you know, nobody knows, but it's actually everywhere and uh, all pervasive and influential. So, so, you know, like you, you can't walk 50 feet in any city in North America without seeing something created by, you know, Kirby and Ditko and Lee, like without seeing some image that reflects Spider-Man or Captain America or what, any of the characters. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, very relatively few people know who they are. To the extent there is a public face, it's Lee. But this is like all the people who in the early 60s were working, you know, at this like sleazy publisher of which they were the lowest rung on the ladder where the, the, the owner didn't even want to look him in the eye and where the other people like Mario Puzo are like, you know, like, look at these clowns. They think they're doing something great. And so, so it's kind of like an amazing story. Yeah, yeah. I think it's an only in America story <laughs> because of the mixing of types of people that came and – you know, uh, the simulation of Jews and, uh, giant corporations and mass media. I feel like this is a true American success story. The story of Marvel yeah, Comics. I would actually say, I mean, if you're thinking about analogies, Disney itself is also an analogy. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I think the way the Disney characters, you know, um, uh, uh, have a huge life, uh, apart from their, the original cartoons that they were made in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of other things. Um, yeah. Um, have you thought, I think you tweeted about this at one point, have you thought about writing a, a Jack Kirby biography? Um, a little bit, yeah. I mean, there's a guy named, uh, Mark Evanier, who's, uh, the, uh, was Kirby's assistant in the 70s, who's working on a book, which I think will be, uh, the first main book that'll come out. And, uh, if I do something, it'll, um, uh, try to carve out a space separate from the sort of biography that Evanier is going to do. But yeah, I, I think there is a book to be written about, uh, Jack Kirby. Yes. Yeah. I mean, has anyone thought about a, a joint biography of Lee and Kirby together? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. I feel like the point of doing a Kirby book would be to illustrate like how hugely important he is, you know, and that, that, that Marvel Comics was only one decade out of like, you know, basically four decades of, you know, really amazing creativity. Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else you want to add about any of these, uh, characters before we wrap up? No, I think, I think, I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for, uh, taking the time. Jeet, uh, probably if you're on Twitter, you probably follow Jeet here, but if you don't, it's, it's here Jeet, right? That's your handle. Uh, here Jeet. And I am R-E-A-C-W. 
um, A-R-Y-H-C-W. Uh, so thanks to all of our viewers and listeners and uh, Excelsior, I would say. <laughs> yes, enough said, I guess. <laughs> okay. okay, thanks, Pete. Yeah, thanks, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Before you go, a quick message from the suits of Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.